Okay, this is uh, Dr. Steve Hodges, and I had um, a thought that I would start a podcast on um, one of my areas of interest, which is uh, pediatric voiding dysfunction, or as you know it, you know, pee and poop accidents in, in kids, which I think this has to be the only podcast on that topic, for sure. And this first one is going to be just me talking about some background information I think can benefit all parents. Um, and the goal would be to, you know, have guests um, regularly and get insight from other experts in the field, um, be gastroenterologists, nephrologists, other doctors that deal with um, these specific issues in kids, and then maybe branch out to other areas that might affect it, um, you know, psychology, um, diet, and so forth. Uh, I've been wanting to do it for a long time, so I think it's going to be cool. I'm sure the production value is going to be horrible at first, and we shall see if I have the time to keep this up and to do it correctly, but you got to start somewhere. So the, the first topic... I wanted to discuss was just the general topic as urologists understand it of pediatric voiding dysfunction. So as, as you guys may know it, it's just pee and poop accidents in kids. Um, it can be just pee accidents. It can be just poop accidents. It can be urinary tract infections. Problems in kids related to controlling or emptying their bowels and bladder. And a very specific issue that we need to make note is that this is in otherwise healthy kids, what we're talking about. There are kids that are born with anatomic conditions that make it impossible to be continent or stay dry. And there are – these can be anatomic problems like just the, the piping is, is all wrong. This can be neurologic problems, so if the brain's not working right, spinal cord's not working right, um, like spina bifida or brain disorders. Or you could acquire some kind of anatomic or neurologic disturbance. And that's a whole nother discussion, whole nother field of study. What we're talking about right now is your everyday, run-of-the-mill, healthy kid, runs, jumps, plays, does everything normally, you know, in whatever in the in the most broad meaning of that term, but for whatever reason cannot control their bowels and or bladder, um, and ha and 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 one of the goals of this is that to help parents get an understanding because it it what I see in my practice is that it seems almost either the child's doing it on purpose or some kind of vague, weird causes, and so it it engenders, you know, anger in parents, frustration in parents, or all sorts of, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of quackery like made-up diagnoses or weird therapies that are all directed to somehow magically make the child um, stay dry. But if you look at how things are supposed to work and then how things aren't working in kids that are having accents – then I think it becomes clear, and then you can kind of discuss and deal with it from a position of knowledge, and it's easier to be at peace with it and then work towards making it better. So what I will talk about in this meeting meeting is uh, in this session or podcast is just out of the urology textbooks, like what we are taught about this condition. So first of all, 
the bladder develops very rapidly at birth. So it starts off relatively small with what we call an infantile uh, voiding pattern, meaning an infant or ba- newborn baby that's, that's voiding is just it's just kind of happening. It's like a reflex almost. It fills somewhat and empties, fills and empties. And it fills and empties much more frequently the younger you are. And then as you grow through the first two or three years of life, um, the bladder grows and develops and the amount that the bladder can hold and the amount that you empty increases. So you go from peeing like you know 10 times every hour to once an hour until you eventually develop a, a an adult voiding pattern at let's say 12 or something. So there's this progression from an infantile, we call infantile voiding pattern where you don't know what you're doing, you're not you're not controlling it, it's just happening basically as a reflex, which is your typical baby in a diaper. And then adult pattern where you feel it and you find a bathroom go pee when you you're able to. And the important thing to keep in mind and is that the bladder is growing at this time and then the bladder growth tends to slow down a little bit after potty training and so you need this period of infantile pattern avoiding to have the bladder grow so not to pick on anybody but if you're if you're having some kind of um discussion on elimination communication or whatever so that's not necessarily potty training you're just holding the baby over the toilet when you think they're going to pee and as long as you're letting them do that as often as they would in a diaper and you're not like teaching them from a young age to hold it then i guess that's okay it's just not very uh, time efficient but if you somehow are using that pattern to teach them to hold and start trying to void like an adult or a three-year-old when they're only six months old then that can affect bladder growth and can be a bad thing so keep that in mind so the next part that we're taught is very interesting, and I do not know why this doesn't get covered more. But to me, this is huge. Even in newborns, there are studies that voiding occurs only while awake. So a newborn infant will have some kind of brain arousal, an awakening. It may not be like they wake up and look at you, but they will not be asleep when they void pointing to my my big um uh you know point that i try to make with everyone is that bedwetting is not normal and so even in newborns voiding does not occur while asleep they will uh wake roll over whatever uh, and then void and then go back to bed and so bedwetting is not normal and if you have normal development, you won't wet the bed ever uh, if things go correctly. Um, the bladder training, which happens later on in life, is a complex process. It involves you know, sensing the bladder's full, um, going to pee and relaxing your muscles in your pelvic floor. I don't know how to say that any other way. To make yourself void and empty your bladder or bowels. And it takes a lot of maturity and mental and physical dexterity that usually is not present in kids until the age of three to four so that's why we push for training after the age of three and you know usually get done by four because it seems like in most kids that that works out best um and when this doesn't work out when kids are unable to potty train or they have accidents after potty training 
um, in our textbooks. This is called dysfunctional elimination syndrome, or DES, and it's called dysfunctional elimination syndrome because it involves not only the uh, the bladder but also the bowels. And so, I make a big point of saying that most people undertreat bowel issues in kids. Um, that's not to say that the bowel issues are not understood to be important. All over our literature, people harp on you have to fix the bowels first. The bowels can cause all this. Where I think the breakdown is is that folks won't make sure that when they're treating it that they treat it um, adequately. They'll, they'll say, well, you know, we gave them some laxatives, so they should be empty. But they haven't checked, and that's uh, where I think we have the edge in helping these kids get better. Um, one thing I will say, most conditions that don't fall into the category of what we're talking about now, such as um, your run-of-the-mill pee and poop accents, for example, if a kid has spina bifida or a kid has, they're born with a, a bladder abnormality, these are obvious and diagnosed easily. There are a couple things that can get missed in these kids that I would hope, especially if I'm talking to parents that I don't see their child up close for an exam that would get picked up but the main thing is if I see a kid in my clinic I'll you know I'll check um, on exam um, if they have any kind of abnormalities on their spinal cord so their spinal cord should go straight down to their what you would call a butt crack I guess we call the gluteal cleft and that should be straight line down there should be no dimples abnormal hair patches or deviations or, or, or or anything. Anything abnormal there needs to be evaluated. And it usually doesn't just affect the bladder. Usually there's some issues with with the lower extremities, toe walking or, or foot weakness or pain. But if there's a spinal cord abnormality on exam, that needs to be worked up. And there's one thing that I don't talk a lot about because it's very rare, but it's the Ochoa syndrome, O-C-H-O-A. This is a kid that has basically all the symptoms of dysfunctional elimination that we talked about. Um but there's actually an underlying cause, a medical condition, based on that. And the only thing that will get picked up on this, and this should be picked up by pediatricians, which is why I don't talk about it a lot, but you know you never know, is that when they smile, um, they look like, they're, like, look like they're crying. So it's called the Ochoa or Urofacial Syndrome. Um, and so out of our text, they say, you know, the syndrome exhibits all the classic features of dysfunctional avoiding including urinary incontinence, recurrent UTIs, constipation, reflux, and kidney damage, but also have a peculiar, painful, or apparently crying facial expression during smiling. So these kids have a lot of stuff going on. It's not just they you know, pee, pee on themselves once in a while. So I do not think it will be missed, but it's just an interesting thing to know about and um, to rule out. Um, and it's an autosomal recessive condition, meaning it's inherited. It's on chromosome 10. That's too much information, I realize as I say it. But something to keep in mind. So when we do see these kids in the traditional urologic workup, we do what? We do a, a history, right? You start all exams with history and physical. The history is, you know, what's going on? When did this problem start? When did they potty train? What kind of issues have they had? We ask about peeing and pooping. Some doctors, I'm not big on this. Maybe I should be more, but I, I don't find it as useful. They do avoiding diary. So I guess avoiding diary would be useful if you had a kid that just was drinking enormous amounts of fluids and that was causing the problems. I find that most time, if you ask, you know, the kids aren't really in control of how much they're drinking, so the parents know. But So you could start with avoiding diary. You could say, you know, okay, 
when does he drink, when does she drink, you know, how much, and then when does she pee, when are accents happening, see if there's any patterns developing. I, again, I don't use that much, maybe I should, but avoiding diaries is a, is a common tool. I think it's more about just kind of getting information and getting people's uh, data down so the history is easier, but it's something to keep in mind, uh, and it may pick up on some abnormalities maybe you missed. Then obviously there's a physical exam. We we already talked about uh, looking at the spinal cord. Um, you'll do a general urologic exam on these kids, feel their belly, make sure you don't feel any poop. You know, every parent asks me to feel their kid's belly and see if I can feel poop, and I have never felt it. But at one time I felt the kid, and I was like, they must really be impacted. Uh, relative to, you know, x-rays, which are, you know, full all the time. You, you Even in little skinny kids, you have to push so hard to feel rectal impaction that you would hurt the child so it's you want to do a, a good exam but it's, sometimes it's hard to pick up things um so we look at their abdomen their back um you know their private parts basically make sure things normal we can check a urine test to make sure they're not infected that's an easy test to do we can do an ultrasound of their kidneys and bladder to make sure there's no anatomic cause things we're missing um interestingly in our text they don't usually recommend an x-ray which is the you know mainstay of what i do to pick up pooping issues and i think maybe that's why we're more effective in treating that because we find cases that maybe are missed because parents are only asked well i know that's the case parents are just asked if they're pooping okay they say fine it's ignored and then there's a study called the urodynamics i don't use urodynamics often but i do do it if kids are not getting better and we want to see if we can get enough information to get botox approved for them which, if anyone follows me, knows it's one of my favorite ways to treat kids that are just tough to treat otherwise. But it does involve a surgery, and so it's last resort. So in the traditional management, um, our textbooks uh, are not too innovative. I mean, some things have changed, but the traditional cookbook approach is, you know, you have a kid, he's having these problems. Okay, you know, you do your voiding diary. Make sure that you... Drink plenty of fluids throughout the day. Make sure you pee on a schedule every two hours. Make sure you're pooping soft poop every day with some Miralax. Um, and maybe add some medications to relax the bladder, which can be prescribed or obtained over the counter um, in some cases. And that's about it. And that's what I was doing for years and, and got frustrated with the results and which led to my research currently. Um the main kind of teaching, and this gets complicated, but the main thing that, um, that our books focus on is that there's this pelvic floor discoordination. So they say, okay, there's this kid, and he was peeing fine, and then he never really learned to relax his muscles, like what I guess it's best described as a reverse Kegel. So if you if you have to pee and you don't want to go pee, you do a Kegel. You tighten the muscles. But if you want to go pee and, you, and you're trying to initiate it, you relax. That's the first step in peeing. The first step in pooping is relaxing the sphincter. And so the theory is these kids don't know how to or aren't able to fully relax the sphincter. And when you look at these patterns of voiding on urodynamics or other tests, you see this. And so then you teach them. Um, how to do that via biofeedback, and that's biofeedback physical therapy, which never hurts and can really be helpful. Um, 
but it's not the mainstay of what I do, and I'll get into why. Um, there's also some, in addition to the Botox that we mentioned earlier, there's some neuromodulation. So if you have this bladder that's going haywire, you can stimulate the nerves in the opposite direction to calm it down with uh, patch electrodes or, or needle electrodes. And so that's like another kind of end-stage treatment. But to get back into the where our philosophy departs from the traditional, it's like a chicken and egg phenomenon. So what the textbooks mostly say is that you had this child, they were peeing fine, I guess, but then they developed this sphincter dysnergia. So they developed either from holding or whatever behavioral problems they had, um, not like a bad kid behavior, you know what I mean? Like just um, they develop some behaviors that aren't good for emptying their bladder. Uh, maybe they waited too long to go or they were holding it. And they're, so they started developing this real powerful sphincter contraction that wouldn't relax when they avoided. So they weren't emptying well and they weren't pooping well and it led to this cascade of events. Um, but they don't really know they're doing it. So you have to train them with biofeedback physical therapy to relax. And so... When you see a physical therapist, what they'll do is they'll, you know, say, hey, 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 looks, try to pee, and they'll have these patch electrodes on on the sphincter to see that it's relaxing, and they'll say, oh, good job, you relaxed it, and that's how you should initiate voiding, and if you want to stop it, you close it. The one thing I do I do find disturbing is that I, I realize that for physical therapy, you have to distinguish between sphincter tightening and sphincter relaxing, and so you have to do both, but a lot of kids will come see me and say, well, they got sent home, you know, with instructions to do kegels every you know 10 kegels every hour or something like that which is obviously not going to help a kid that's having a problem relaxing the muscle you want to teach them to relax so that that covers you know what the traditional therapy is the you know time voiding schedule um biofeedback therapy um some laxatives and then maybe some medications to relax the bladder why that doesn't work very well is that the, what really is going on, we think, and what Dr. Regan, I think, proved that is that you just have a kid, if you have a neurologically normal kid, healthy kid, they're peeing and pooping. But at some point, and we have all seen this, I don't know anybody that has kids that hasn't seen this or can't understand this, from the time they're born to about three, there's going to be some time where they have a hard poop. And when they, to the infant brain, they can't like think through like, oh, it's just hard, I'm going to let it out. It hurts and they tighten up and they, and they, and they hold it in. And so maybe this is noticed by parents, maybe the kids work through it, but usually there's a period of time where they have to change their diet or get put on laxative or something. But that behavior is set right there where they have this tendency to withhold a poop instead of let it out. Eventually the poop piles up at the end of the rectum. So it's not that they couldn't use the sphincter, but they were using the sphincter correctly because they were having pain. Then they led to this big impaction of poop in the rectum this goes to goes on to affect the bladder, cause bladder spasms, so you can't control your pee. And then you it becomes difficult to even control your sphincter. Um, for example, it's impossible to poop if your colon's all dilated and the muscle don't work. So then you have to strain, and if you're straining, you can't relax your sphincter. So whereas the general teaching is that a child developed an abnormal sphincter and then they had the problem of peeing and pooping accidents develop, so fix the sphincter. What a Regan we say is that the child's sphincter was working fine, 
but they started holding their poop, that led to all the dysfunction. So if you fix the poop, the sphincter will fall in line eventually. And that's not saying physical therapy is not beneficial. It's very beneficial. But if you approach it from the way we're talking about it, you get better results. So what we do for these kids is we focus on the constipation. We get a plain x-ray of their abdomen. We ask them how they're pooping. You know, some kids come in and say, you know, they're not, they're having significant pooping abnormalities. And it's funny how some people will kind of just gloss over, oh, they poop once a week or something, something ridiculous. Like they don't poop every day, but you know, they go every two to three days and like it's normal and it's not. You should definitely poop every day if you're eating every day. Um, and so by focusing on that history and picking it up on x-ray, we're able to aggressively treat the colon and and get to better success rate um, uh, with the kids we see. Another big area where we kind of um, deviate from the traditional teaching is that is a lot of our textbooks treat bedwetting as a whole separate problem. So let's say you had daytime and nighttime wetting. That would be dysfunctional elimination. If you had just bedwetting, they'd say, well, that's just nocturnal enuresis for bedwetting. That's a whole other problem. That's related to sleep and fluid output and... But the way we look at it, and it makes most sense, and I think people are coming around to it, is that there's a spectrum of bladder overactivity, which if it's very low, then you have bedwetting. If it increases more, you get daytime symptoms and so on and so forth. And that's most likely related to how how bad the constipation is. So I hope that made some sense. I outlined it, I outlined it, but I didn't really – it's kind of off the cuff, so I hope I wasn't rambling too much. But what I want to – the message to be in the end is that these problems are not mysterious. They're not a kid being difficult or not um, wanting to be dry or being dirty or just being defiant. It's not some kind of sensory processing disorder. If you have a child that's over four and couldn't potty train or can't control their pee and poop, almost always this is what's going on. I mean, there are obviously there are exceptions to every rule, but predominantly this is what happens. And if you can diagnose it so easy by just coming in to see a doctor, getting an x-ray, and then treat it, they'll get better. And I'm not saying there's any silver bullet that can fix the problem, but there are different things we can try. And once we get them cleaned out, they will be fine. And it's a shame that any child in America or the world, but America seems worse because we, we have such good health care otherwise, is having you know accidents and pediatricians are often – just saying, oh, they'll outgrow it or they'll be dry when they want to be dry and completely ignoring the fact that it's a medical problem that needs treatment. So if you have a child that cannot potty train or has pee or poop accidents awake or asleep, it's a problem. It's a medical condition just like anything else, and it can be treated. So hopefully this was a good quick first start to this podcast, and hopefully we'll have a really cool series of them if I can get the time to do it. Thank you very much.